and be reading uh, Job chapter 23. Listen now to the reading of God's holy word. Then Job answered and said, Even today my complaint is bitter, my hand is listless because of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to see uh, to his seat. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know the words which he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in his great power? No, but he would take note of me. There the upright could reason with him, and I would be delivered forever from my judge. Look, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he works on the left hand, I cannot behold him. When he turns to the right hand, I cannot see him. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. My foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. But he is unique, and who can make him change? And whatever his soul desires that he does, for he performs what is appointed for me, and many such things are with me. Therefore... I am terrified at his presence. When I consider this, I am afraid of him. For God made my heart weak, and the Almighty terrifies me, because I was not cut off from the presence of darkness, and he did not hide deep darkness from my face. Seek the Lord's blessing on this his holy word. O gracious God in heaven, we rejoice and give thanks to you for your blessing upon us and again for the great privilege that we have to study your word and as we continue to study regarding your attributes and especially these attributes which may strike terror and fear in the hearts of man, we just pray, Father, that you would give us wisdom and insight and that you would help us to see the truth of your revelation of yourself and that we would glory in it and give praise and thanks to you for it. And so we ask now that you would bless your word to us. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. <clears throat> when we think of terrible things, we don't often think of things that are good. In fact, some terrible things may scare us, so much so that we, we would shake and tremble in fear. And of course, no one enjoys being afraid. So it may be a surprise that there are some attributes of God that we might consider terrible. Now, I need to use a lot of qualifiers here. God isn't terrible. We considered last time that He's good and loving, merciful and kind. But the attributes that we'll consider this evening are considered terrible because they may scare us. And if we experience them, well, we may very well shake and tremble. So they can cause us to respond and react in the same way that truly terrible and bad things do. And of course, as we just read, this was Job's experience. He acknowledges God's greatness and God's power, His sovereign power to appoint things as He pleases, and he's terrified in the presence of God simply because God is who He is. 
Indeed, God is so much bigger than we are. He's far more powerful. He's perfect in every way. He's the Creator and we're just the creatures. He has all power and authority over all things, over us and over the entire universe. And just as He spoke and all was created, we know that God could simply speak and it would all be taken away. Standing in the presence of someone with that kind of power and authority would certainly cause anyone to shake and tremble. But here's the special blessing in all this. Because of who God is, certainly we should respect and honor Him. We should uh, do what He commands us to do and, and not do what He forbids us to do. But especially for those who trust in Jesus, even though God has these terrible attributes, we can come boldly into His presence. Because we know that He loves us and He cares for us. He cares for us. And as we'll see, even the, the terrible attributes of God, though we should respect them with a reverent fear, they're actually great sources of comfort and encouragement to us in our walk of faith. And so the first attribute that we'll consider is God's holiness. God is most holy. Holiness refers to perfect purity, that is, without stain or blemish, as well as being set apart. And so God's holiness is related to His infinite majesty, His glory, and His magnificence that far surpasses any and all creatures. And of course, ethically, it means that God is completely separated from all evil and sin. And so when sinful mankind stands in the presence of a most holy God, he can't help but feel the burden of his own sinfulness. And so in the scriptures, we see the common response of those who suddenly find themselves in the glorious presence of God. Now often in the Old Testament, it's the appearance of the angel of the Lord. And the common response is for people to, to fall down on their faces with fear and trembling. Now, such action acknowledges their unworthiness before God, but also His worthiness to receive all glory, honor, praise, and a reverent fear in our approach to Him. It's because they didn't regard God as holy and worshiping the Lord in the way He commanded that Nadab and Abihu were struck down by God because they offered profane fire on the altar of incense in Leviticus 10. We also see the awesome terribleness of God's holiness in Isaiah's vision of the Lord's heavenly throne room when we just read one part of that at the beginning of the service. Isaiah says, And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of Him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And here in this passage, Isaiah is so overcome with great fear, thinking that surely he was a goner. And truly, except for the mercy of God shown to him by the seraphim, cleansing him with the burning coal from the altar, he would have been. God is most holy. Indeed, this is one of the things that can help verify people's experience. 
when they claim to have seen a vision of God, or uh, like was popular a few years ago, we had these books, uh, kind of heaven tourism books, where someone claims to have that they died and they took a tour of heaven, and then God sent them back to earth to uh, share what they had seen. Well, if you hear or read these accounts, you would note, among many other problems, that there's never any sense of God's holiness. They never talk about fear or trembling or falling down on one's face in acknowledgement of one's own unworthiness. There's just uh, unicorns and, and technicolor landscapes. Yet in Revelation 1, we see the very same terribly awesome picture of God's throne room that Isaiah saw. And John responds the same way, even in uh, chapter 1, verse 17, falling at his feet as dead. And we just saw it also in in Revelation chapter 4, where even the heavenly hosts that is there in the presence of God all the time, they fall down in the presence of the holy God as they give Him praise. And so there's a stark difference then in the biblical accounts and the accounts that are often given in these heaven tourism books. And so I'd urge you to beware because one of them is is lying and is deceitful. Well, God, implications of God's holiness for us then is that God takes sin very seriously. Every sin, no matter how big or how small, is an assault against God's holy character. And so we can't take sin lightly because God doesn't take it lightly. And if you think about it, The sin of Adam and Eve was really just the simple sin of a child, right? Taking a piece of fruit that they were told not to take. And yet because of this seemingly small childlike sin, Adam and Eve and and all humanity descended from them through ordinary generation were plunged into an estate of sin and misery. And so yes, God takes sin seriously. And so should we. Another implication of God's holiness is connected to our justification. And in justification, we are declared holy in God's sight by faith in Jesus Christ, by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Because we are now clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus, we can then come boldly to the throne of grace and to God's presence without fear of His striking us down. And so we come not in our own righteousness, but we come wrapped in the holy and righteous robes of Jesus. And so we can then enter into God's presence. We're reminded of this when Christians in the New Testament are often called saints or holy ones because they've been cleansed from the stain of sin by the blood of Jesus Christ and they've been set apart to the service of the Lord God who is holy, holy, holy. Another implication relates to our sanctification. Though we're justified and made holy when we first come to faith in Christ, well, we acknowledge that we still have a remnant of the sin nature remaining in us, the law of the flesh that wars against the law of the Spirit, as Paul describes in Romans 7. And through the process of sanctification, the Spirit of God enables us, by the grace of God, to become more and more holy until we are perfected in the perfect image of Jesus Christ. This perfected holiness certainly won't come in this life, but 
will be the final work of Christ as he re, uh, presents us, his bride, the church, as holy, pure, spotless, and without blame before God on the last great day. And he will thus be enabled to stand forever in God's most holy presence without fear or condemnation. The writer to the Hebrews charges us in Hebrews 12, verse 14, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. And so if we would see God in the fullness of His glory and holiness for all eternity, well then we must be holy as He is holy. And again, we can't accomplish this on our own, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ will cleanse and purify us so that we won't miss this awesome sight and we won't be filled with fear and we won't tremble with dread when we see the Lord in all His glory. And so that God is certainly most holy. Well, God is also righteous and connected to righteousness as His justice. And we considered some of this this morning. Righteousness is conformity to the law. Concerning God, there is no law above God as His own perfect nature is the supreme standard of right and wrong. In one way, some have considered the relationship between righteousness and justice is that righteousness is God's inherent quality and justice is the way God displays that quality in His ruling over all creation. And so righteousness and justice are truly closely connected. In the Bible, we see that God is a righteous judge who will always do what is right and just. In Genesis 18, as Moses is interceding for the wicked city of Sodom, and in particular for his nephew Lot and his family, Moses strengthens his case by acknowledging God's righteousness as supreme judge, saying, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? In Psalm 11, describing God as the judge of all the earth, who will judge sin and sinners, the psalmist concludes in verse 7, For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. And Jesus as the King of righteousness will be God's minister of justice on the last great day. And God's justice will be administered in, in two ways, in, in two different ways. There's remunerative justice, Remunerative justice is that the rewards I receive is benefits of Christ's work on the cross and through the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Because the just wrath of God was poured out on our, Jesus for our sin, again, we have forgiveness. And so when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And He is just in forgiving us because Christ paid the penalty for us and endured what we deserved. Also, we're justly blessed with eternal rewards because of the fruit of the Spirit that God, God's grace enables us to bring forth uh, to Him in His glory. These rewards, though, are not earned. But again, it's God who works in us to will and to do for His glory. But God is just bestowing these blessings. He is just in bestowing them because He is the supreme judge of all the earth. But there's also retributive justice. This is God's just punishment of sin and sinner. We know that the wage and curse of sin is death. 
And so when people refuse to acknowledge God as God, when they so harden their hearts that they exchange the truth of God for a lie and wantonly sin, violating God's law and assaulting His perfect holiness, God is just to punish them. Not only in this life, but most especially in the eternal life to come, when those who do not confess Christ as Lord and Savior will be cast into the flames of hell as just punishment for their sin. This aspect of God's justice is often despised by people today, even those who claim the name of Christ. But it's a very real truth. Again, as we considered this morning, if God overlooked sin and, and didn't justly condemn, uh, condemn unrepentant sinners, well, He would neither truly be just and righteous nor good and holy because He must punish sin. So what are the implications of God's righteousness and His justice? Well, we're reminded that all sin, evil, injustice, and evildoers in the world will be judged when Jesus returns on the last great day. Every single wrong will be corrected, and every right will be vindicated on that day. And we can rejoice and give thanks that God is truly most good because He is perfectly just and righteous. Because God is righteous and just, we're called to be righteous and just in our lives. And this is not only in how we actually seek to live, but by doing right and treating others with fairness. But it's also a reminder to us that because God is the judge of all the earth, well then we don't need to keep tabs on other people's sins. Because God alone is the righteous judge, and vengeance and justice belong to Him alone. Also see that we have peace and comfort because the God who abounds with grace and mercy is a just judge who will do that which is right at all times and in all situations. And this is especially an important uh, comfort for us, especially when we may be uncertain about whether someone we love, whether they knew Jesus or not, and if they, that person has then since died. Obviously, we can't perfectly know a person's heart, but usually with most believers, there is a sure and certain fruit in how they live their lives that gives us hope and assurance of their spiritual condition. And sometimes we may not have that assurance because perhaps if a person struggles with sin because of doubts or just the inconsistency in how they lived out their faith. Especially when it, uh, it's someone that we know has heard the truth of the gospel proclaimed. And yet there's this question mark that remains of the whole situation. Well, we won't ever know for certain. But we can have true peace and comfort as we cling to two important attributes. Two great truths of God's character. One, that God is a God who abounds with grace and mercy beyond what we could ever possibly imagine. And then the second is that the judge of all the earth will do right. He won't make a mistake. He won't judge wrongly. And so the truth of God's character can certainly give us peace without giving us false hope or no hope at all. Well, third attribute that falls into this terrible category would be the jealousy of God. Now, we often 
think of jealousy as irrational, highly emotional zeal or envy for uh, what someone else has. But that's not the case with God. God is a perfectly jealous God who is zealous, and the jealousy of God is related to his zeal. He's zealous to protect his own name, honor, and glory. He doesn't take affronts to his honor, holiness, or, or any of his perfections lightly. And so really, this is why idolatry is really the greatest affront to God's being. Since he is the one true living God, the fact that sinful man so easily turns aside to worship false idols and gods crafted from their own hands, it's like a slap in the face to the one who created them. It dishonors his name and denies him his glory. No one and nothing is to be glorified in worship but God alone. Not only does the second commandment inform us that God indeed is a jealous God, but the first four commandments are given so that God's honor, name, and worship might be preserved and reserved for Him alone. Again, the Lord through Isaiah declares in Isaiah 48, For my own sake, for my own sake I will do it. For how should my name be profaned? And I will not give my glory to another. God will not share His glory with another, because He alone is God. Thus, He alone is worthy of all praise, honor, and glory. Well, the implications of God's jealousy for us is this. And the key implication is one that we as Reformed Presbyterians know very well. That what we do in worship and how we worship matter greatly to God. The regular principle of worship is rooted in the second commandment, but as we just noted, that could even be expanded to the first four commandments as well. The regular principle is the practical outworking of God's perfect jealousy for His name, honor, and glory as it relates especially to worship. But as we well know, or at least I hope we know, the mechanics of what we are to do in worship must also be accompanied by a heart that is right and true with the Lord. If we exclusively sing psalms, a cappella, and worship, well, we certainly do well, but it amounts to nothing but filthy rags. If our hearts are not also set and focused on giving all glory, honor, and praise to the Lord. Jesus tells the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4 that God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. Not just the truth of what God has revealed to us in His Word about how we are to worship Him, but also with hearts truly tied and truly led by the Spirit of God. God's jealousy for His glory impacts our worship. One final attribute the terrible attribute of God is God's wrath. <clears throat> when we speak of God's wrath or anger, we're referring to His just and holy hatred towards sin. Again, in connection to God's holiness, since sin is a blemish and assault against God's holiness, well then He rightly and He justly hates sin and is angry towards sin. Because of his whole, this holy hatred, God must judge and punish sin and evil. He can't turn a blind eye and ignore it as much as many would like him to do. And certainly some believe that he actually does. 
No, God, because of who He is, because of the very essence of His being, hates sin and He must punish it. Now thankfully, God is gracious and long-suffering toward us and often delays the full outpouring of His wrath against sin. But Jesus warns repeatedly that the day of God's wrath and judgment is coming and therefore we ought not to delay. In John 3.36, Jesus says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And in Revelation 6, we're told that this day of wrath and judgment will be so severe that those falling under judgment will cry out for the mountains to fall upon them, as if that might ease the severity of God's wrath that is coming upon them. It's important to note here that sometimes it's often said God loves the sinner but hates the sin. But this isn't the truth revealed in God's word. Not only is God angry with the wicked every day in Psalm 7, verse 11, but in the last great day God's wrath will not only be poured out upon sin, that is, upon actions and thoughts contrary to God's law, But God's wrath will be poured out upon the unrepentant sinner. As it's the evil godless ones that will be cast into the lake of fire with Satan and his angels. And so God hates sin. And he hates those who wantonly practice it. And his wrath and his anger are stirred up against them. A key practical implication of God's wrath and anger towards sin is that if God didn't pour out his wrath on sin and evil... Again, one, he would not be a good God. There would be no ultimate standard of good and evil. God's judgment of sin then reinforces the standard for us of what is right and what is wrong in God's sight. And instead of being consumed with fear and anxiety, though, about the wrath and anger of God, it's important to be reminded that those whose faith is in Christ have been delivered from God's wrath. Because Jesus endured the wrath and curse of God on the cross for the sins of his people who believe in him, they have certain hope and confidence that Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1. Finally, as we consider God's holy and just wrath and anger towards sin, we're reminded of just how terrible and awful it is for sinners to fall into the hands of an angry God, as Jonathan Edwards so famously proclaimed. So what are we to do? Well, certainly as believers in Christ, we humbly give thanks that God has been merciful and gracious toward us through Jesus Christ, that, we, that He who knew no sin became sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. To be spared from such a terrible thing is truly a good thing. But we shouldn't just stop there. In fact, because of Christ's command given to the church and the Great Commission, we can't stop there. We can't simply say, Whoo, you know, I'm I'm safe and then, then go ahead and carry on with our lives as if there was nothing else that we needed to worry about. No, brothers and sisters, coming God's coming wrath on sin and sinners should fuel our prayers for and our witness to the lost. We should diligently pray for the lost, pray for opportunities to share the gospel, and pray for boldness to actually take advantage of those opportunities so that all those whom God has appointed for salvation might be saved. Let us not be like the watchmen who recline easily atop the wall 
confident in his own safety because of the fortification that's around him, while those in the city around him fall prey to an invading army and become engulfed in the flames of destruction. May it never be. Let's then be diligent to proclaim Christ and his gospel, and that through our witness God might be pleased to save many from the flames of hell. And may it all be to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. O Lord God in heaven, we rejoice and give thanks as we consider these attributes of your holiness, your righteousness and justice, your jealousy and your wrath. These are truly terrible in that they strike fear in the hearts of sinful man. Because of what Jesus has done for us, because we're covered in his righteous and holy robes, we don't have to fear. Indeed, we can come boldly into your throne of grace to make our petitions known, to come before you and to offer up to you our worship, all because of what Jesus has done for us. That he endured your perfect and holy wrath. The wrath that we deserved for our sins. And that your justice was poured out upon him. So that we could be made righteous in your sight. We just praise you and thank you Lord. That your holiness. Your holy zeal. Also was bestowed upon us that you now call us holy ones and saints not because of our own efforts not because of our own works and deeds but only because of what Jesus has done for us Father this is such a glorious gospel message may truly may we have boldness to go and to proclaim it to those around us in this community to be a true beacon of light and hope Because there are many around us who will on that last great day be consumed by eternal flames and endure your just wrath and curse for sin. So we pray, Father, that you would help us to be faithful herods, to at the very least warn them of these things to come, but at the very most that you might turn many hearts to yourself and they would be spared. And so we just praise you and thank you for these things. And again, we thank you for the great gift of the Lord's Day, and that the truth that we considered on this day, would be, we will be reminded about it throughout this week as we look to serve you and glorify you in all that we do. And so we ask now for your blessing upon us as we go from this place until we turn again on the, ne- the next Lord's Day. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Okay.